Hello there, it's Asher Lemond with the Spoondrift Podcast. This week, since it's St. Patrick's Day week, the week of St. Patrick's Day, I'm going to rebroadcast an older episode. It was from all the way back in Season 2. I talked about nuclear thermal propulsion, which I found pretty interesting. So... Here's a nod to that episode. It was the 25th episode of season two. So I hope you enjoy it the second time around. Here it is. Hello there. I'm Asher Leamund, and welcome to the Spoondrift Podcast. Here on the show, I talk about a lot. I skim the surface of a giant ocean of information, and I capture the spoon drift. On today's episode, I'm going to be talking about rocket engines, specifically ones that are centered around nuclear thermal propulsion. Here we go. Today's topic is one that interests me a lot. It's about rocket engines. Now, the the title may not have really screamed that, (laughs) but it is. So the topic is nuclear thermal propulsion, or what is sometimes abbreviated as NTP. Now, nuclear thermal propulsion is essentially an alternative to chemical rocket engines. In the same way that power plants can sometimes be run by coal or powered by nuclear power, like there's a coal power plant versus a nuclear power plant, same difference here. We have Chemical rockets, which are what is predominantly used in the rocketry industry right now, versus nuclear rockets. And I found several articles discussing what nuclear thermal propulsion is. And they range from articles published by NASA, by Space News, by Smithsonian. And I'm going to I'm going to grab information from all of them and kind of Feed it all into one story here, and I'll have a bunch of links in the description tying you to the articles if you're interested in learning more. So let's first talk about what nuclear thermal propulsion is. Essentially, as I mentioned, it's nuclear power for space. And here's how it works. It utilizes nuclear fission. And fission is when an atom divides up into smaller atoms. Specifically, in this case, we're talking about uranium. When uranium-235 splits up into multiple atoms, and then those atoms, like if we have one uranium atom and it splits into two, then those two split into two. Now we have four atoms, and this chain reaction happens. And that is what fission is. The uranium is dividing up. Now that process releases a lot of heat, and that heat is what's used to heat up a fluid and accelerate it by forcing the heated fluid through a nozzle. And that creates thrust. In in rocket engines that use this method, the way it works is you have the radioactive material, typically uranium-235, which is an isotope of uranium, and you use the heat that is generated by the fission to heat up liquid hydrogen, which is stored on the on board the rocket as the fuel. 
And once you heat up the liquid hydrogen, it expands into a gas. And then we force the gaseous hydrogen through a nozzle, creating the thrust. Now there are a number of key differences between nuclear thermal propulsion and chemical rockets. One would be that chemical rockets rely on combustion, and that produces water, which is a heavier byproduct than just hydrogen. Another difference is that with nuclear thermal propulsion, the fuel that we're carrying on board, the hydrogen, is more energy dense. You can extract more thrust from the fuel than you could using chemical rockets. And with more thrust per unit of fuel, it makes it makes the cost-benefit analysis lean towards the nuclear thermal propulsion side. If we have to carry up less fuel and we get more power out of it, then that seems like the option you would want to do. Now, such a system, if it were to be implemented on a rocket, it wouldn't be used for launch. So we would still be using chemical rockets to launch a vehicle into space. But once you get into space and you shed the chemical rockets, what th this is when the nuclear thermal propulsion would come in. These rockets would be used whenever maneuvering in space. Now let's talk about the benefits of nuclear thermal propulsion. We talked about how earlier it is more energy dense. That means we can travel further on less fuel. It also generates more thrust, allowing us to travel further faster. These two benefits that I've talked about now culminate in kind of making space missions easier to carry out, and it minimizes some of the risk that is usually associated with them. We can pack more fuel on board, launch it into space, and then use that fuel to do more things. So a major risk when it comes to launching missions in space is the fact that you're away from other humans. If something were to go wrong, you're a, you're a bit on your own. <laughs> um, and the ability to travel further and to travel faster makes aborting missions possible. Before, once you were committed to a long-term mission, let's say if we were planning on going to Mars, on such long-term missions, you have to be very mindful of how you use your fuel. There's only enough on board for you to do what you need to do, to get there and to get back. If you were to stop midway, you have to manage your carefully budgeted fuel in order to complete the mission. And oftentimes, aborting a mission is not on the table. You get there all the way and you get back. But by increasing the energy density of the fuel with nuclear thermal propulsion, abort, aborting a mission becomes a possibility. Also, we can go further out into space with this technology. And being able to go faster, NASA estimates that NTP technology could cut Mars mission durations in half. And that's why they categorize it as a game-changing technology. That's the sub-website on which they published some of the material about NTP. Also, this technology allows us to be a bit more flexible when it comes to mission timing. As of right now, we're extremely dependent on orbital alignments. We have to be mindful of where the other body is, whether it be the moon or Mars, where the other body is in relation to the Earth whenever we launch, because we have to 
as we talked about before, budget the fuel so that way we're able to get in a correct alignment and to move along a planned path to get to the destination. But by increasing the energy density and being able to go faster, we're able to make more adjustments on the fly, no pun intended, while we're moving towards our destination. And being able to move more allows us to not rely so heavily on orbital alignment when it comes to timing things. So we have more freedom when it comes to planning, which is great. Nuclear thermal technology is not a new technology. NASA had started developing it even back in the 1960s. However, it got put on the back burner when it came to space shuttle development. The space shuttle became a priority, so the nuclear thermal technology kind of got put on hold. But that's, that's changing right about now. Let's talk about the fuel for nuclear thermal propulsion. I mentioned a little bit earlier how uranium is what's going to be used in this sort of technology. Uranium has 92 protons, but can have varying number of neutrons. And that's what creates different isotopes of uranium. Something that people may misunderstand about uranium would be that all uranium is dangerous and can be used to make atomic bombs or instantly kills you from radiation poisoning. Well, that's not actually the case because uranium, it just comes from Earth and it's out there. People have been exposed to it. I mean, uranium-238 is the most abundant form of uranium. And by itself, it's not all that dangerous. It's not even able to be used for fission, the, the sort of processes that we're familiar with when talking about uranium, those used in power plants and weapons. 238 isn't able to be used for those sort of processes. Now, uranium-235, that's what's used in energy production and in weapon construction. And it is fissile, or it's able to be used in fission. Now, I should be clear here, I'm not saying that it's okay for anyone to just go out, grab some uranium, put it on a ring, and wear the ring every day. Uranium is still radioactive and, and should be treated appropriately. But what I am saying is that different isotopes of uranium have different levels of radiation that they give off, meaning that it has different applications and warrants different security measures and safety measures depending on the isotope of uranium that you're dealing with. Now the difference comes between enriched and unenriched uranium. Now that's the difference between uranium that's dangerous and uranium that's not so dangerous. The uranium that we were talking about before that's able to be used in energy production and in weapons, uranium-235, it occurs naturally but is in extremely low concentrations. Now the enrichment process is the process of creating a sample where there's a higher concentration of uranium-235 and a higher concentration of uranium-235 is what is dangerous. And that enrichment process is what a lot of the development that went into projects like the Manhattan Project and developing the atomic bomb. Those are the sort of processes that were a major obstacle to making that weapon. So enriched uranium is just uranium-235 that's in a much higher concentration, and that's what enables us to use it to our benefit. <laughs> Now, a power plant, it requires a lot smaller of a concentration 
typically from 3% to 4% uranium-235 in order to be able to be used. The hope for nuclear thermal propulsion is that we can find a way to use less enriched uranium. We still need it enriched in order to be able to use it, but if we can use a form of uranium that's less enriched, it's of a lower concentration, but high enough that we can use it, then what we, what we do there is we make the uranium less expensive because we don't have to pay so much to create a high concentration of it. It's also less dangerous. Um, it, it emits less radiation, and that is especially important for the astronauts that would be on board to any vehicle being powered by nuclear thermal propulsion. And also we have less security issues. We're not, we don't have to control the uranium as carefully as with super high concentration or super enriched uranium. Now the fuel form is something that's kind of interesting. With chemical rockets, it's usually a liquid. You have liquid oxygen or liquid helium on board your rocket. Well, in this case, we're packing uranium when we're going into space. And uranium is a rock. The way that we usually form uranium is we make it into solids, which we then use to initiate fission. I mean, there are a number of different forms that have been explored. Now, what I mean by form is that one form that's being explored specifically for nuclear thermal propulsion would be pellets. Uranium can be formed into pellets. Now, why would we want to do that? What's the benefit of using a pellet versus some other form? Well, the main reason that we want to form the uranium into these solid shapes would be that should something go wrong, if a pellet were to break, it's not as dangerous to people after the fact. Whereas if the uranium were to vaporize and people could potentially end up inhaling the uranium, now that could be a problem. An analogy that can help that can be used to help understand why this might happen would be that if you had a glass and you break the glass, it's easier to pick up the pieces of a glass than if you were to have a balloon and let the helium out. Trying to gather all the helium back up is not going to be a very easy task. So if you can avoid vaporizing any of the uranium in the event of a disaster, that would be a good thing. So that's why they hope to form the uranium into solid forms, solid shapes, in order to bring it on the rocket itself. Now currently, fuel production in the form of uranium is handled by a company called BWXT. So there's a bit of an overview about nuclear thermal propulsion. Now what's it have to do with today? Well, NASA just announced three major NTP development contracts, and they just released it on July 13th. Now, the contracts are one year long. There were three of them distributed, the first of which went to BWX Technologies. That would be that company that's already handling fuel production for the government. And also on that same contract is Lockheed Martin. Now, the second contract went to three companies, the first of which is General Atomics Electromagnetic Systems, the second one, X-Energy, and the third one, Aerojet Rocketdyne. And the third contract went to a bit of a list of companies, actually. The first one, Ultrasafe Nuclear Technologies and their parent company, Ultrasafe Nuclear Corporation. The second one, Blue Origin, 
the third company, General Electric Hitachi Nuclear Energy, the fourth, General Electric Research, the fifth, Frematome, and the sixth, Materian. The focus of these contracts is to develop a reactor for a future nuclear thermal propulsion system. Essentially, come up with a way to heat the liquid hydrogen and generate thrust using a radioactive substance. The goal of the contract, I mean, so it's, it's kind of a broad focus. We want to develop a reactor. That's great. But what is each company actually expected to do? Well, they need to identify the design needs of the reactor, and they have to have an idea of what the design is going to be by the end of the contract. They don't actually have to build the prototype, but they need to design the system. They need to demonstrate the feasibility of the design. They need to estimate the cost of the system, and they need to estimate the schedule to build the prototype. So it's basically a, a planning contract for NTP. Now at the end of the contract, the Department of Energy's Idaho National Laboratory will review each team's concept and presumably help in the selection process of which technologies will move forward. Now, this was all done by NASA. This is NASA's effort to stimulate development in NTP technologies. Now, there's another government organization called DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, and they're also investigating nuclear thermal propulsion. They have a project called DRACO, DRACO stands for Demonstration Rocket for Agile Cislunar Operations. Essentially, this project is looking for a way that we would be able to quickly maneuver and move around in the space that's between Earth and the Moon. That's what cislunar means. The space kind of enclosed by the spherical bubble that would intersect with the Moon. They want to be able to move quickly and efficiently in that space. So they have actually awarded separate contracts to a number of companies exploring this technology in that context. Those contracts went to the first General Atomics Electromagnetic Systems. They also had one from NASA from before. And next, Blue Origin and Lockheed Martin. And both of those companies were awarded contracts to develop a spacecraft for the Draco project. So there's an overview of nuclear thermal propulsion. It's kind of, it's, it's fascinating to me, and I, I know that this idea was most surprising because I always figured nuclear power plants, nuclear technology, it was radically different than other technologies. Like when we were comparing power plants before, if we have a power plant that's run on, off of fuel, you burn the fuel, it releases heat, and it drives the cycle to generate electricity. I always thought nuclear power plants were radically different, but they're not. The only difference is the heat source. Same goes for rockets. When we're comparing chemical rockets versus nuclear thermal propulsion, the difference is the heat source. In chemical rockets, we have combustion happening between different fuels. Sometimes it's just contact between the fuels that drives the combustion. Sometimes we need ignition. And there's actually a really good YouTube video published by the Everyday Astronaut called is SpaceX's Raptor engine the king of rocket engines? And this video really digs in to the different types of chemical rockets and how they work and how the cycles operate that drive these rockets and a general overview of the actual machinery involved. And then we have the nuclear rockets. 
Now the difference here is we're still heating up a fuel to force through a nozzle, but the difference is we don't require combustion. We use fission to generate heat, turn a fuel into a gas, and force it through a nozzle and generate thrust. So the difference is is not that much. Now there there's the hazard, of course, that goes along with radioactive materials, and that must be dealt with accordingly. But it, I just find it so fascinating the just the subtle difference between kind of what's been conventional and the alternative when it comes to nuclear options. So researching for this, it just opened up this this giant field of information that I was just digging through. Learning about NTP, learning about chemical rockets, and I couldn't even begin to touch on all of it in this because I it was so interesting. I wouldn't want to get any... Yeah, it was so interesting. And there's so much out there. And the development of these things, I mean, it's... The NTP, you know, started back in the 1960s, and took years. But the chemical rockets have had many years, more years of development when it comes to actual application and production. So there's a lot of information out there about how rockets work when it comes to chemical fuels. And there's, I guess, a growing amount of information about nuclear options. I just, I find it so fascinating. And I'm, I look forward to learning a lot more about this type of propulsion and seeing where it will take us in the future when it comes to space exploration. Time for the music update. This week, I'm looking forward to the release of the album from Billie Eilish called Happier Than Ever and an album from Los Lobos called Native Sons. Here are my music picks for this week. We have Movie Star by The Veronicas featuring Free Soul and Lava, English Alternative, Hold Me by Eden, Korean Chill. Congratulations by the Winnetka Bowling League, English Alternative. Turn You On by Cherry Pools, English Alternative. Imagine by Doja Cat, English Rap. Stranger to Me by Zachary Knowles, English Alternative. Traffic Lights by Sarah Kays, English Indie. Walking and Running by Modest Mouse, English Indie. After Coffee by Joywave, English Alternative. All I Really Want Is You by The Marias, English Alternative. The Come Up by Logic, English Rap. <laughs> and I know this is it's a bit of a list here, but I got a lot of music. And there's like a new release playlist that I was playing that I'd compiled and I was just pulling songs that sounded good to me. Let's see, where'd I leave off? Partner in Crime by Lucy Dacus, English Indie. Wooden Soldiers by Modest Mouse, English Indie. I want to see, <laughs> I want to see the world, the world by Hobo Johnson, English anti-pop. Tendency to be a loner by Zachary Knowles, English alternative. Counting Crimes by Nessa Barrett, English alternative. My Therapist by Hobo Johnson, English anti-pop. And I know that was already in a playlist. It's just, I listened to it a lot. Uh, Misinterpreted by the Murlocs, English indie. And finally, the last song on the list here, Triple Dog Dare by Lucy Dacus, English indie. And there's my music picks. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spoon Drift. 
If you want to listen to the music that I talked about, you can check out my Spotify profile, The Spoon Drift Podcast, and find The Spoon Drift Season 2 Episode 25 playlist. For more episodes of The Spoon Drift, you can visit Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spinnaker Radio's home on the web, radio.unfspinnaker.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to keep up to date on everything to do with The Spoon Drift, you can follow me on Twitter, at SpoonDriftPod, that's at SpoonDriftPod, or on Instagram, at SpoonDriftPodcast. That's Spoon Drift Podcast. I hope to talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.